Hello all and welcome to, I think we're at episode five now, of The Media Beat with Maureen and Claire. And this, as you know, our regular listeners and our new listeners, it'll be news to, it's a conversation between Maureen Kerr and one of her close confidants in the biz, as they say, uh, Claire Tavernier. Maureen is the partner who leads the media practice at management consultancy, Arthur D. Little, and doing tremendous things in the world of advising in media strategy and also investment. And Claire is an analyst and commentator, but has also worked for companies in line management positions at a senior level, but also advises as well on matters of digital media. So massive overlaps in their experience, but they come to the world from slightly different uh, directions these days and have worked together for years and years and years, but have kindly let me uh, into their world to ask some questions of uh, matters of media and associated subjects. And I'm finding it a fascinating um, series of podcasts that we're creating. Today is a super special episode in that we're going to have or what I think you could call a masterclass. So we're going to home in on a particular single subject and do, I think the word is deep dive. I think uh, pretty much every presentation these days have to have the phrase deep dive in and do a deep dive um, into how this particular aspect of the business works. And uh, we're going to be talking about subscription models, which is a fascinating subject the more you dive into it like a lot of um, business um, like a lot of uh, uh, business activities when you actually look at the detail it's it's fascinating how how it, it differs uh, the more you go into it so uh, there's no better people in the country than to talk about this and the various subscription models that are evolving and have evolved and why they evolve so differently uh, than um, Claire and Maureen so I'm going to start at the very beginning for people like me who don't really know much uh, about this except from a consumer perspective and say um, I'll ask Claire so Claire um, when we talk about subscription models in media I guess the first thing we have to do is divide um, the consumption of media and the production of media into various segments because uh, by segment the subscription and business models vary wildly so I wonder if you could just to open the show um, give us a whistle-stop tour of the various media segments what they are and then we'll dive into how they differ after that yes uh, thank you very much Oliver as always a fantastic introduction Yes, subscription models have sort of burst onto the scene of the, the, the media landscape, I would say 10, 15 years ago. Of course, there were subscription models beforehand, primarily for cable, TV, but they certainly weren't as extensive as they are now. If you think about the number of online subscriptions you pay every month from Spotify to Netflix to maybe even some gaming subscriptions to your newspaper, online subscriptions, etc. And the reason they've increased so much is that investors like them very much, perhaps even too much as we're discovering now. But uh, they have had various levels of success in various um, different media segments, and that's because of different consumption patterns. So if we look at the different uh, media segments, the biggest one by far is what we call TV and video. And that includes you know, all the TV content, movies, etc. And there, obviously, uh, it's probably the most visible. The Netflix was very much the first entrant in the subscription model um, game, and they were extremely successful. They were then closely followed by Amazon and then slightly later by Apple and then Disney. And now we have Paramount. There's Hulu in the US. Local players in Europe, in the UK and in Europe are entering as well. Everybody has got their subscription model. You're probably not even realizing that by, by now you're spending upwards of, you know, £100 a month just on online subscription models. Although, actually, people are realizing and that model, which has been incredibly successful for a number of years, is struggling a little bit at the moment with higher churn, even though people are still subscribing, they're definitely churning. They're also really thinking about the value they're getting from their subscription. They're cycling through subscriptions more and more, and they're trying to, to reduce the, 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 the outlay every month that they're having on their video subscription. In parallel, uh, in the music segment, and we call it music, but it's really music and audio, there is, uh, again, a very, very, very successful subscription model, which is Spotify. It has some competitors, but they are much smaller. 
there's Apple Music, which is bigger in the US, but relatively small over here. And there is uh, Amazon Music, which again, hasn't quite um, pushed through, partly because Amazon's not really been that invested in it. Uh, music, of course, uh, is quite a different proposition because you don't use music in the same way that you use video. You, you use it in different contexts. You use it in a repeat way, in a way that you don't use video. But it was very striking how quickly people moved from owning music to just renting music, essentially, which is what you do on the subscription model. So that's an interesting new pattern that we can explore. Uh, and that's worked out quite well for Spotify and some of their competitors. Uh, third segment where subscriptions started quite early is newspapers, newspapers and magazines, I should say, but primarily newspapers. And there we've seen very much a sort of dichotomy between those newspapers that decided very early on to create a paywall and tell people they had to subscribe and pay every month in order to access the content and those who decided to go for a volume play and just make their content av available for ev to everyone, but, you know, uh, funded by advertising. And there have been some pretty well-documented failures in the world of newspaper when it comes to subscriptions, but also some, some, some very big successes. And today, after, again, a decade of trial and error, you, we have some very powerful, high-priced, successful uh, subscription models for premium newspapers in particular. And in particular, I'm thinking the Times in the UK, the New York Times, etc. So really interesting uh, model here because it co it it, um, it lives alongside a, a a free model as well and seems to thrive anyway. Uh, so those those are probably the three the three biggest well known subscription model uh, segments. But there are two others uh, which are have with various levels of success tried to come up with subscription models. The first one is books and books has struggled to find a subscription model partly because it hasn't digitized although it was one of the first. Uh, market segments to digitize, of course, with the ebook, there's been a, very much a glass ceiling for ebooks and it hasn't really gone over about 30% of the market. And then subscription models for physical product is much more complicated logistically. Uh, plus publish, it's not really in publishers' interest in many cases to move away from, from the buy to own model on the book side. So subscription models for books, there are a few. The biggest one is Kindle Unlimited still relatively confidential and quite small. And then the new kid on the block is gaming. And gaming, of course, when people think of gaming, they think about big, you know, Call of Duty style, mega console and PC games. And those are, have been trying very hard to come up with subscription models because they want to lock in their customers, but they have struggled with the complexities of technology and, high, and the high broadband speed that you need, the lack of latency that you need to play a really big model. So cloud gaming and you know this sort of system is, is taking a while to, to come in. The area of gaming that's really booming at the moment in terms of subscription model though, is casual gaming. And those are the small games that you play on your phone. And they are hugely popular. They're actually bigger in the world of gaming than those big, big famous games. And they have relatively successfully introduced a number of subscription models alongside their primary model, which is advertiser funded. So there we have five different segments, five different uh, ways of looking at subscriptions, but a model that has touched every single part of the media landscape over the last 10 years. Perfect. What a summary. Not only a summary, which was really easy to understand for a layman like me, but also little teasers in there as well about what is to follow when we do our deep dives. So let me just get this straight uh, for people new to this. We're talking uh, TV and film, visual stuff, stuff you can watch, uh, and, that, and that encompasses TV and film. Then audio, which is uh, podcasts and music, and I guess online radio, but that doesn't really touch you that much but things you listen to uh news and magazines so newspapers and, and magazines uh books um which uh, people are struggling to get away from the beautiful tactile nature of a physical uh, piece of media and then the new kid on the block gaming uh, not as you'd expect the big blockbusters but the smaller ones so uh that's lovely a lovely number a prime number five so easy to understand and each of your senses being stimulated by your eyes i suppose you could say your eyes and the visual your ears on the uh, audio and maybe even your fingers on the gaming it falls apart with books but anyway um 
Maureen, I'm going to turn to you now to start. And I guess, um, as Claire has explained, the big one, of course, is is visual TV and film. Maybe you'd like to just give us maybe a, a sort of potted history uh, and, and where we are today in terms of subscription models. And, of course, um, consumption models as well, because that's an interesting angle, isn't it? The way we consume media is very different. The idea of binge watching a TV series is completely new and wouldn't have existed before when we had to wait next week for the next episode of Cheers or whatever it was. Uh, you know, So it's actually driven behaviours that we haven't had before. Um, binge watching is the one that um, um, sticks in my mind. So Claire, in, in the world of, sorry, Maureen, in the world of uh, visual TV and film, how is the subscription involved and where are we today? The reason that we're looking at these particular models is due to funding of, you know, programs. So TV series, films, commercials. Um, and you know, originally uh, it was all, you know, potentially sort of funded by um, advertising. Um, and then um, as a consequence of what we call sort of home entertainment, which is the you know, the distribution of um, what what we called back then in the day CDs um, and then DVDs um, is classified as sort of the home entertainment aspect. Now, home entertainment then spawned uh, uh, an industry which is now subscription-based. And as Claire alluded to earlier, um, the reason that we are focusing on these different types of distribution models and or revenue models uh, is for the funding aspect of it. So if you can think through um, the predictability of purchase behaviour, consumer behaviour, um, you'd like to lock in and create a loyal um, a consumer base. So subscriptions then evolve so that you know, you know, if you make a piece of programming, you fund a piece of programming, then indeed it's going to be purchased. So um, the majority of the funding was very much advertising driven. Um, and then uh, if you think back in the days of uh, uh, early days of Netflix, uh, its acquisition of Love Film, when we had um, a CD uh, uh, delivered to us through our letterboxes, um, that became a model of um, uh, subscription. So, uh, subscription in turn um, provides what we call sort of an annuity. So, you pay on a monthly basis or you pay on an annual basis. Um, and there is a sort of bifurcation of um, of activity there. And as I say, they continue to be either advertising or subscription. And the whole sort of Netflix, Amazon, uh, Disney and the like uh, decided to sort of focus their efforts on uh, subscription models because of the predictability of the income, uh, knowing that you and I will put a direct debit in place and continue to uh, pay on a monthly basis. They didn't need to, they didn't need to worry about uh, the uh, they didn't need to worry about the um, uh, you know the payment uh, uh, stream. Subscription models uh, you know have been adopted by all of the what we call the streaming uh, services for that predictability of uh, of, of earnings and, and investors are very keen on and value very highly um, uh, recurring revenues. So uh, the recurring nature of subscription models, uh, we rarely do uh, see people switch off. Um, uh, subscriptions, they will be automatic, automatic direct debits, for example. Um, however, that said, uh, in the last uh, year or so, um, we have seen and witnessed, and certainly in the uh, two quarters, first two quarters of 2022, uh, we have seen uh, a move away uh, and a consideration of, for um, uh, subscriptions packages and a number of those subscription packages as our belts are tightened and as our the, the, as our fiscal uh, activity is examined in this sort of uh, more austere um, environment of an energy crisis and a, and, a, and a macroeconomic crisis and a potential recession. So um, uh, we are now seeing, particularly in the TV um, video uh, market, uh, a, a consideration uh, for you know, how should we deal with the churn rates around subscriptions. Um, and a reaction to that has been um, uh, uh, evaluation or re-evaluation of an advertising funded model or set of models. So we are seeing a lot of uh, the streaming players, including Disney Plus, Netflix, Amazon and the like, but in particular Netflix and Amazon, a bit more, more topical, um, are introducing a, uh, an advertising funded layer to their, to their offering to appeal to 
those more conscious um, individuals that uh, would like to see variety, uh, like to see content, but really are, are sort of, you know, concerned about their purses and uh, want to see some value. So we are now seeing the reintroduction of uh, uh, advertising models. Um, we uh, touched but, upon this in a previous episode, didn't we, Maureen? Sorry to interrupt. And people's tolerance oh. for advertising uh, and, and how much they are prepared to take before they think, oh, um, this isn't even worth it. You know, when you're watching a clip on, um, uh, when you're watching a, a, just a, a, a clip online on YouTube, you're quite tolerant about the adverts that come in because you feel like you're getting it for free. How tolerant would you be uh, of adverts within Netflix when you're used to getting it um, advert free at, at a premium? It's a beautiful balance isn't it really i i guess this is, these are the kind of balances that you need in your job when it comes to advising investors um, it's these kind of balances that you need to take into account when you're when you're working out what the what the business proposition is if you like and whether it's worthy of investment is that is that part of what you do so so the um the the, the what we call the streaming um providers, uh, so the likes of a, of a Netflix and Amazon, um, are seriously considering their offerings to consumers in either boom times and downtimes. And this will be classified as a potential downtime. So, so, so those, those companies, the reason that they're considering um, more of an advertising funded uh, uh, proposition here. Uh, is because they've also reached a, uh, a point of saturation with the, the consumers uh, globally. Um, and they are now um, really seriously considering the sort of a, 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 the churn rate. So what, by that we mean people switching off their uh, subscriptions and uh, leaving those services for other uh, entertainment or screen time. And that screen time can be uh, audio even. Um, and that's where you've got Spotify and others who are branching out into um, you know, podcasts or video casts and the like. So uh, we do have um, uh, 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 an underlying an underlying set of reasons as to why you know these companies are now introducing the ad funded model. It's not alien to the industry, um, the ITVs, um, the Channel Fives, the Channel Fours have always you know used. Um, access to brands and advertising um, uh, revenue to support its program making. So all we're seeing now is a a reversion to that model. So this is becoming you know more of a, a prominent sort of mixed model here. And yes, you know uh, there's nothing wrong with um, you know advising individuals to say that an ad funded model is worth any less than a subscriptions model. You just have to look specifically at your um, information you hold on your consumer uh, that is valuable enough and the reporting and understanding of that consumer, how that consumer's watching, when they're watching, to provide it to the advertising agencies in order to you know, justify the, the advertising money that you'll get for that. So it's not, it's just a different model. It's not valued any less. It's just a different, uh, a different approach to uh, revenue. It's also interesting to think about the fact that for a long time, when it started, the streaming model was a secondary right exploitation window, meaning that it was about programs that had already been seen somewhere else. They had already been funded by someone else and exploited probably with advertising revenues somewhere else. And this was another way to make money out of stuff that was already, already funded. So it was all extra revenues. And that model has shifted quite considerably now that Netflix and its competitors are mostly about original programming. So suddenly, it's, rather than having to fund the acquisition of what we call second and right, i.e. shows that have already been aired elsewhere, most of their money, and that's a lot of money, as we know, those, those budgets are really increasingly crazy, uh, most of their money goes to funding first-run uh, productions and those first-run productions traditionally have always been funded by advertising. That's how the TV system works, and so it's not entirely surprising that they are finding themselves struggling with a model that was built on a different set of rights exploitation. And it changes so quickly as well. It it feels like we won't go into this now. Maybe it's another it's another um, episode, but. but uh, 
digital technology and AI, working out the numbers, working out all these different variables to get your optimum business model. Sounds like a very, um, from what I know about AI and its ability to optimize. This isn't even, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, Oliver, it's not even AI. There are very simply three possible business models. Either you have your revenues and your costs and they are they are in going in parallel and that's your traditional TV model, not subscription, but you mm. pay for it, you know, you pay for your costs and then you get advertising and you, it's a cost plus model. You kind of know what your margin is going to be. Or you, the best model that people love is when you have fixed cost and your revenues keep growing. That's a brilliant model, but very few people have that. But it means every single new customer, you know, brings in extra uh, free revenues. And the problem is a lot of the subscription models now, including Netflix, are stuck in a in a in the opposite uh, curve where they have fairly flat revenues and escalating cost, and that's not a good place to be. You, you know, there's, there's no AI that tells you that, you know, you can see it immediately, physically. It's just not going to work if your revenues are flat slash decreasing and your costs are exp exponentially growing. And therefore, you need to find new sources of revenues. And that's true, by the way, of all subscription models. Uh, they have the huge advantage of bringing those recurring revenues that Maureen talked about. And that have been very, very highly valued by investors because they see them as more resilient to economic downturns, for instance, although not entirely, uh, which is show, being shown that it's not always the case. But they don't scale. They don't scale in the way that advertising revenue scale, especially once you've reached what we have reached now in the streaming world, which is sort of saturation of the market, where everybody who is going to get a subscription has a subscription. And now it's more a question of which one are you getting and how many do you feel like you need to get? We'll find a way for AI. I promise you, it'll be it'll be exactly. You're right. Of course, there's only three fundamental business models. But I think, in terms of um, how much people tolerate, maybe how much people tolerate to pay for certain things, and and what your inventory should look like, because you can't have absolutely everything. But we'll find a way to get AI in. I'm a nerd forever, and uh, maybe this is a maybe this is a separate episode. Uh, Maureen, sorry, do you want to um, come in on the uh, video? The again? data. Well, the data, the data aspect, though, Oliver, I think you're absolutely right about, and that is going to be uh, important to underpin the advertising-funded video on demand for the likes of these streamers that are moving away from subscriptions to uh, advertising-funded um, platforms. And that's the reason why we've seen both Disney and Netflix partner commercially with two major tech companies you know, one being Disney and the Trade Desk and also uh, uh, Netflix with Microsoft. And specifically that Disney and the Trade Desk is all about, you know, programmatic advertising. So therein lies your uh, uh, penchant for everything data, digital, <laughs> and AI. <laughs> Excellent use of um, penchant. What's the French for penchant, by the way, Claire? <laughs> well, we, we, we don't use those English words, you know. We have uh, l'Académie Française. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Maureen, yeah. for helping me out. Yeah, yeah. So I, I do, I do, I do agree that data is actually going to be extremely important. You know, and analytics are going to be extremely important in this new kind of advertising-funded environment where uh, you really need to understand exactly what your inventory looks like and who is watching your programming, and you have to show that to the brands that are interested in advertising on your platform. That's going to be key. It's probably thank quite you, a good time to thank you. Probably quite a good. Uh, you're so polite as well. <laughs> it's it's uh, like uh, uh, over to you. Um, so uh, back to the studio. So it's probably reasonable for us to move on to uh, audio now. So uh, we'll start with music, but I guess we'll move on to uh, podcasts and other things that stimulate one's ears whilst you're uh, riding on the tube. Um, uh, actually, uh, in this case, Maureen, could you could you lead us off with the the rise of Spotify? I mean, I remember so clearly being introduced to Spotify and thinking, no, I like CDs. Uh, there's no way I'm going to pay a subscription so I can listen to a bit of Pink Floyd or The Smiths, uh, just showing my age, uh, and then not owning the media. I'm not going to rent music. It sounds insane. Now it sounds insane to do anything else, which is another uh, another example of how our uh, because as technology moves on, uh, so does the way we the way we live our lives. But um, can you tell us a little bit about the story of subscription models in the audio space, Maureen? Well, well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll not, um, I'll not uh, repeat uh, sort of, you know, Claire's wonderful introduction to, across all the different uh, 
different uh, uh, subscription models across all the different industry seg segments. Uh, but suffice to say that, uh, you know, uh, I think music is distinct from um, video and TV. And, and I say that because I probably can underscore that with uh, more recent, in 2022, more recent, um, uh, uh, let's say, proclamations and disclosures and discussions with the founder of Spotify, Daniel Eck. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing his surname, but um, Daniel has gone to great pains and effort to uh, explain to the market uh, why uh, and how subscriptions are, are distinct within music uh, versus an audio versus uh, versus visual audio and video. Um, and, and I think he's absolutely right. Uh, so let's, I'd rather sort of, you know, focus, focus on that because I think we all kind of know the origins of, of, of Spotify and how it's really, uh, be, let's say, let's say dominates, um, and is one of the major, uh, players in the, uh, in the music industry. Um, um, and, and he makes a distinction, uh, possibly on the, on, on the grounds of, on the basis of, of the audience in which, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, attends uh, his, his platform. And that is, uh, we, are, we are locked in, uh, we are less um, likely to, uh, uh, to switch uh, providers. Uh, we have built up a loyalty to the platform. And the, re and the reason for that, I think simply put is, is you know, we've decided as, as an individual, as an entire family, uh, that we no longer want to, you know, acquire, own, uh, the assets of of music, be it on a vinyl, be it on a on on a, on a, on, a, on a DVD, uh, a CD, uh, but we'd rather just rent it, but but housed in what we're calling our playlists, and we guard those with great treasure and uh, and and glee and pride, and uh, and and no one can take those playlists away from us, and we share them with our, our friends and family. And it's that that the, the, the music industry in particular, the platforms, Spotify has locked in those consumers. Um, and so our propensity to switch to other providers, if indeed there are alternatives, and there are alternatives for our uh, entertainment um, uh, time, um, is, is pretty secure. So we, we, are not, we are not switching. We are not switching off our subscriptions. Uh, we continue to be locked into the subscription of Spotify and 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 some of its uh, competitors like Apple Music and Amazon Music. Um, so um, rather than sort of a potted history, I wanted to make the distinction here that 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 what we're seeing at the moment in terms of the fiscal tightening, in terms of the introduction or reintroduction of an ad-funded uh, series of models that compete with subscriptions, isn't yet happening. In the world of uh, of music, um, and is certainly not happening in the world of uh, of Spotify um, that we can see. But I'll, um, I'll and I'll I'll, 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 um, I'll support and and qualify that slightly, if I may. <laughs> the first one is yes, completely. I think what and it's interesting that Spotify was was a tech company. It's not really a music company. It's a tech company, and what they've they have spent enormous amounts of time thinking about how people consume the content on their platform. And that's why they were very early, for instance, in introducing a family subscription, which allowed a whole family to be on the same Spotify account, but have their individual playlists because they recognized that this was a very strong motivation for people. And indeed, that was very successful for them. But yes, by the two key things with the music, first of all, those playlists, as you say, they are creating a very strong barrier to exit. And a lot of the problems that streaming platforms are encountering right now is there's there's not that much in terms of virus to exit. It doesn't, you know, what happens if you switch off Netflix? Okay, you don't have access to that specific content that was on Netflix. But if you've seen it already or if there's nothing there that you love, it doesn't matter. Whereas on Spotify, yes, the exact same music is available somewhere else. So in a way, you could switch off Spotify and go to Apple Music and you would have the exact, within, you know, a certain within within a margin of error the exact same library of content because it comes from the music labels and it's the same in fact you get johnny mitchell on apple music which you can't get at the moment on spotify but you would lose those playlists you would lose your mixtapes essentially and that that has become a very significant barrier to exit for spotify which is really interesting the other thing of course uh that differentiates music from um 
from video is that you will listen to the same song over and over and over again and you won't with video so that's why those playlists are even more important because once you like your playlist and you're happy with the music that's on it you don't want to lose it that being said spotify is investing in advertising funded programming for their podcasts and it's interesting because the podcast model actually resembles much more the netflix model in that you don't tend to listen to it more than once it's very talent driven content costs are higher not as high as some of the netflix or amazon series but higher because you have to pay for the talent etc uh and it it lends itself much more naturally to an advertiser funded model and uh, spotify is actively investing in in advertising around their podcasts uh with some success although it remains a very small uh, portion of their revenues compared to subscriptions they have Suddenly in, in the UK and the US, they have managed to create some, some level of, uh, of industry buy-in for their, uh, for their advertising model. I think they're struggling more in non-English speaking markets, which remember, again, for Spotify, is there, there are very much fewer language barriers because, you know, you'll listen to the Rolling Stones in, in Germany as well as in the US. And so their, their uh, global footprint comes at a much lower cost than a Netflix, which needs to subtitle or, or dub or have local content. But anyway, so they are investing in, in advertising at a lower scale than others. But they are. But this is something that, they, I, and in fact, Daniel I did talk about it in his most recent call as something that they're spending time on. But it's more on the podcast side than the music side. It's great news. I'm, I'm, uh, I didn't realise I was getting paid for this. So uh, it's excellent news that I, I will be expecting. Uh, I mean, you mentioned talent. Uh, so therefore, um, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's interesting, isn't it, that Spotify dominates so much. And of course, it's, it's like you say, it's the barriers to exit. I don't want to lose my playlists. My playlists are incredibly valuable to me, as are the playlists that have been shared to me by my friends. Um, I'm in my mid 50s. I'm a white guy. So clearly all my friends are, think they're DJs. Uh, and so that they put these really sexy playlists together and then go back to their safe jobs in marketing. Uh, yeah, um, amazing that, like I say, as you dive down into the subtleties, you, you, you start to see what the, what the difference is between our behaviours and, and how we enjoy stuff. I remember, I'm old enough to remember getting uh, saving for an LP. And when the LP came out, you'd take it home, you'd treasure it, uh, you'd put it in a, in a place where it couldn't get bent, you'd look at the free poster. And the physical media was an absolute thrill when I was a kid. And it was also a massive investment. A record could be like five pounds, which could be weeks of pocket money to save up to get this one record, 40 minutes of music. Such a different, um, such a different experience these days, which exposes you know, the next generation to 50, 60 years of pop and rock music. And so you get people liking Little Richard and liking Dua Lipa and not understanding that there's about 50 years in between those two artists. Um, I guess it's... I'm going to interrupt and tell you a very short anecdote about my grandfather when he went out and bought LPs. These were actually, you know, this was the very beginning of recorded music. Uh, we're talking the you know, early 20th century. And he, he was an early adopter, as, as it were, his parents. So he'd go and buy... A, an album or you know a, a, a vinyl record of probably classical music and then because he was a prankster and he would go into a cafe this is Paris obviously and then hold the, the vinyl in front of him and rotate his head then <laughs> he was reading it and people thought that he was because nobody knew what these things were and they were like so how is the music so anyway he thought it was hilarious Anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah, thanks for bracketing your grandfather with me as if we're the same generation. Can I just point out that uh, your grandfather would be the generation before me? Uh, but that is a great anecdote. Uh, I like that. Very French as well to do that uh, ostentatious mime. I studied yeah. mime under a French lady and I uh, thought mime is terrible. And then I, once I started to understand it, it was... Uh, uh, anyway, never mind about French and English culture. I guess we move on to the next segment. Um, I guess it's probably your turn, Claire, isn't it? So um, I'm really interested in this one. Oh, I'm interested in all of it, actually. Oh, Maureen wants magazine. to say something. Oh, really? I can never tell yeah, with Maureen. Said, before, yeah, I've sort of got to, got to get a signal out. Yeah. Uh, before, before, before we move on uh, to, 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 to the other segment, I, I just wanted to touch on Claire, and it'd be great to get your view on uh, the economics of, of the subscriptions and the reasoning behind, you know, Spotify's uh, diversification again back into advertising and um you know podcasts which as you rightly say then is competing and has a similar dynamics as as, as netflix uh but it, it, it what i'm intrigued by is um 
you know, what these uh, variable costs for for the music industry, particularly Spotify, and the power of the labels um, are that where can they break through? How can they really upset or disrupt that sort of commercial relationship? Because no matter what, um, you know, 70, 80 80% of the income goes back to the labels and that's quite significant and this 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 year we've seen uh, you know Spotify still making a net loss even though it's almost 10 billion of revenue that it's uh, managed to uh, to pile up um, so I, I you know why is it that such an extraordinarily uh, well run um, and you know with very loyal and you know and deep loyalty uh, and consumer behavior around the platform that they're still loss making. It's, it's just phenomenal that we are still seeing, you know, this. Uh, whereas Netflix clearly has broken through and has, uh, and is, uh, you know, has shown some sort of uh, uh, ability to be profitable. Um, I, I, you know, what, do, do you see any? Do you see any? Um, you know, alternative disruptive of, of uh, points of interest here. That is it around negotiation to the label. Is it? Is it doing that? I think it's. I mean, I don't know the details. I think it's very unlikely that they will manage to, to improve their terms of trade with the labels. Obviously, they need them. Uh, that, so the, Spotify, the traditional Spotify business model is absolutely typically this sort of parallel tracks of costs and revenues because, you know, every single subscriber, and then and, and actually a little bit more complicated than that. Sorry, I'm changing this, this analogy because they have subscribers, of course, and that's growing and growing. But they pay the labels on listens. And so if one subscriber uh, listens to a lot of music, then they pay more to the label than if one subscriber listens to no music at all. Because obviously it's it's by it's by um, it's it's by um, played played track. So it's a weird model. It's very skewed in favor of the labels. There is a weird symbiotic relationship within Spotify and the label because they have they have to have each other. They need to coexist, but equally they have completely different um, incentives and 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 things that they want. My understanding is that Spotify has decided that that wasn't going to change, that they needed the labels, that they weren't going to do much in terms of renegotiating those deals and that they were going to have to live with it and find other ways to improve their economic equation. And these, and the way that they have found it, I would say there are two or three big things that they're doing. One, they're investing quite high, highly in unsigned artists, independent artists, artists that aren't signed to labels, because that's a very different equation for them. Now, they have to be a bit careful with this, because if it looks like they're culting unsigned artists too much, the labels will get pissed off. So it's a, it's a slightly difficult balance, but they are definitely pushing their creating tools specifically for independent artists, etc. And you can see how the growth in the independent artists, which is happening anyway, uh, benefits Spotify. So that's definitely something they're doing, but they're not necessarily talking about it as much because they don't want to piss off the labels. And then the other thing that they've sort of decided is they wanted to, they want to own our audio experience. They want to own everything that we do that has audio linked to it. And that means playlists, that means radio, you know, forms of radio, and they've developed those as well. And that means podcasts. And so they've invested a lot in that. And I think they're excited by the perspective of the podcast revenue model, which would be a combination of subscription advertising, because they can see that that might get them, finally get them to sort of, you know, uh, the, increase the gap between their revenue line and the cost line. Uh, it's going to be hard because it's, there's not, it's it's a difficult market podcast advertising a lot of people have tried and uh, it's hard to sell it's hard to you can do a little bit of programmatic obviously and spotify can do that better than others because they have so much data about you but it's, uh, it's relatively low value advertising still it's it's a really tricky one and again you obviously a lot of people listen to podcasts but it's still uh, compared to other forms of audio uh, time spent, it's still relatively small. So you can tell that they're trying various things to try and disrupt that that uh, model. And I hope they get there because I think they are, from a business perspective, they're doing a lot of the right things, but they have an inherent problem from the start, which is their deals with the label. Yeah. Labels. 
And is it so, so Deezer is, uh, is talking about experimenting with different payment methods, but that's probably more payment methods to uh, individual artists and singers rather than to the labels. So it's more weighted. Have you heard that, 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 that they're effectively saying that if, if I decide to listen to, you know, uh, uh, London Grammar, you know, constantly and I don't listen to anyone else, then that proportion of, of revenue should be allocated to that particular band or that particular artist as opposed to, you know, just, just, just to the label itself. Um, I, I, I think Deezer has is, 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 is come out and said, I think once or twice, I don't know if they've actually implemented it, but that's something that they might experiment with, which may be, may be kind of interesting where you move and shift the power to the band directly, mm-hmm. not the label as a whole. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know about this. I mean, the, the money does go back to the to the artist ultimately because yeah. there's, you know, royalty payments and collecting societies and all of that. It's it's really about what sort of share does the label take in the middle and what is their role uh, compared to no label at all. Yeah. Well, we'll be right back yeah. after this break. <laughs> so, uh, which doesn't exist. So, yeah, again, so many dynamics. Uh, so many things at play, uh, which will affect how things how things go. I mean, it's, uh, I suppose there's technology exists which says as soon as I play a track by um, as soon as I play a track by Taylor Swift, then she gets a, a hundredth of a cent. Um, it's not as if the technology stands in the way. So um, newspapers, uh, newspapers and magazines. That's the next segment. Probably not uh, one that we'll go into as much detail. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm subscribing to Readly at the moment which gives me a digest of certain uh, newspapers and magazines but not all of them <laughs> so you can't get the ones that are behind a paywall so that's another interesting dynamic as well but um it's quite a nice way to consume um more specialist magazines so what's the um what's the dominant uh business models consumption models in the world of newspaper magazines um i think it must be claire's turn <laughs> There is no dominant model. Uh, it's a very interesting thing that's happened in newspapers and magazine over the last 10 years. Everybody's tried lots of things and things have settled into a mixed model where there are three or four types of ways to exploit your newspapers and people have chosen one or two or, or a combination. So some I would say premium newspapers have gone for an absolute paywall model. A lot of them are murder papers, but not only, uh, where you can't read anything unless you pay, except if, uh, as Maureen said, a uh, plane falls from the sky and then, you know, they'll probably put the content in front of the paywall. But otherwise, you can't get any articles from Times, the New York Times, even the FT. There are very few things that you can get without, without starting to pay. Uh, that's a that certainly felt like a high risk strategy when they put it forward and it was. And in in fact, some people went there and then rolled back to something a bit less drastic. But for those newspaper who succeeded in proving that model, it's a very good model because not only do you get those recurring revenues, but you're still allowed, you're still able to sell advertising uh, on your newspaper. And that advertising is now very targeted to those people who have paid the subscription. So even though you don't get the mod, the, the volume that you might, if you were a free newspaper online, you do get um, a very targeted readership of people who who want to be there and aren't stumbling upon your content by accident. And that's very highly valued by advertisers. So if you can get there, it's great. That being said, other newspapers have taken a completely different approach where they want their content to be completely free and they are funded by other means, whether it's advertising, e-commerce, conferences, uh, and they're, they're, they've, they've decided that they wanted their content to be available as on many on as on as many platforms as possible, and that meant that it had to be free. Uh, so that's another model. And then the third model that's emerging, mostly with magazines, but not only, is a sort of freemium model where you get a certain number of articles for free and then you and you I'm sure you've seen this you get like you you read three articles and you're like oh this is really interesting and then suddenly there's a pop-up that says well you've reached your maximum articles for the month and if you want to go further this is how much you're going to have to pay and there are 
various models. You can pay for one month or you can get a full subscription, etc. which is an interesting model, which works, I think, well for magazines, maybe not as well for uh, for newspapers, but some of them have have put it in place. So it's a, it's a mixed bags. It's mixed bag in newspapers. It's it's there's been a lot. They've struggled a lot, newspapers, as we know, over the last uh, 10 years to find a model where they were useful and read and you know could 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 fund proper journalism competed with the sort of clickbait on social media and the free you know the news channels as well which developed websites as well which had you know started suddenly competing with newspapers when they were really playing in the same game uh but as things have evolved and as i think uh, impartial news have gained in maybe not in popularity but certainly in prestige uh, they have. It seems that they have now found a found a, a balance that works for certainly for the big titles. It's slightly le- slightly different for the more the smaller regional and local newspapers, which have struggled more. Just before um, Maureen comes in, uh, what's the Guardian model, which is like the sort of the guilt model? So you read a Guardian article and it goes, "Did you enjoy that? Please give us a couple of quid. Go on. You know you're a Guardian reader, so you've got a high moral." Uh, you've got a high moral bar. Uh, that that's sort of slightly different, isn't it? Really, because I remember reading a Guardian article. You just feel a bit guilty at the end when they go, "Please, please, please, please." Some of these journalists have kids to clothe. Um, that's sort of a <laughs> the Guardian only model. Um, Maureen, uh, I, I'm sure you want to jump in. Oh uh, well, um, so the Guardian model is an interesting one. So it uh, it is very much based on a, on a support the newspaper to su- support independent journalism. So. Um, they've actually published their results quite recently, so second quarter of 2022. For those that might be listening to this uh, this podcast in three or four years' time, so um, mm-hmm. so in 2022, um, um, the, uh, the the stats were pretty pretty attractive. Actually, the st- statistics were pretty attractive for the Guardian. So I think they will continue down this uh, um, down this particular road. Uh, yeah, quite a significant number of people in the UK. Uh, are supporting the Guardian, and it is called the support, uh, the support pot. Um, so you can you can you can pay as much or as little as you wish, um, and you'll have full access. But that said, those that are not paying uh, continue to have full access. Um, um, but a- added to these other models, uh, there is um, there is another sort of uh, by a, by a wallet. So there are a couple of tech companies that have come into the uh, into the industry. One in particular is called Axate, um, and they uh, if you're hovering on a uh, on a newspaper and you haven't yet clicked an article or you're you, you know you, you want to you want to basically read maybe a paragraph and you're hovering to debate whether or not you then uh, want to read the next uh, several paragraphs, but then have to actually purchase the subscription. Uh, this particular piece of technology sort of pops up and says, uh, would you like to subscribe to uh, a wallet? And you contribute £10 and then you use that wallet uh, for per article. So there are these methods as well, these models coming through. I mean, of course, that particular company needs to ensure that it has commercial relationship with all of the publications. So um, I don't think they've actually reached sort of comprehensive um, uh, uh, position in the UK market, that is. Um, But certainly they are striving to uh, have a wallet for an an arrangement with certain publishers, uh, be it newspapers or magazines. Um, But that's an alternative one as well in order to to, to, you know, pay per, per article. But as Claire said, you know, these, these models um, uh, are, um, are, are, are not um, fixed. They're not, they're not being very creative. It's just either, you know, a full subscription or, or a couple of articles. So um, I, think, I think in particular, some of these organizations are looking at more loyalty-based programs. Um, and the Times in particular has, uh, has been quite successful at that. So, you know, providing more value added, so theatre tickets or cinema tickets as part of that bundle to justify, you know, your subscription package to uh, a newspaper. So it's been really difficult and challenging for, for the newspaper industry to convert their readers uh, that they didn't know about, that basically just went to the newsstand and purchased their newspaper, uh, to now, you know, knowing a little bit more about them and holding some information on them. Uh, to actually, you know, recruit them to a loyalty program, or indeed keep them and retain them as subscribers. So, so I think newspapers and, and magazines have had it had it tough compared to the other segments of the uh, of the industry. 
Which is interesting because they actually had a, an established subscription model before digitization. A lot of people subscribed to newspapers before uh, before it all was available online, and then it got available online and you could get it free and uh, sort of rolled back. So they've went from a place where people were comfortable paying for content in newspapers to a place where it's, uh, which is never good. Once people have got something for free, it's very hard to roll it back and get them to pay for it later on. So, yes. And I think that's yeah. when um, Robert, Mur uh, sorry, Rupert Murdoch, um, I think, came out and said, it was probably six or seven years ago, hey, you know, um, our journalists, you know, are, are high quality, you know, individuals and we're paying them salaries and I don't want to release them. Um, um, they, you know, writing uh, good articles, good opinion ads, you know, uh, why, are, why are we putting all this content and this quality journalism up online for free? This is ridiculous. You know, and I think that was the impetus and uh, for, for paywalls, in particular for the Times. Um, and I think they also had to stab at it for the, for, the, for the Sun. And of course, he'd already established, you know, um, uh, subscription packages for the Wall Street Journal in the US. And of course, as we know, the New York Times had been experimenting and was quite successful. So, I mean, it seems ludicrous now when we think about it. As you say, Claire, you know, we'd, we'd pay a couple of hundred pounds a year for our newspapers to be delivered to us. Mm. Uh, and then all of a sudden we're getting all the information for free online, you know. Um, so, uh, so, so, so good on the Murdochs, you know, for, for basically reintroducing the paywalls to to really support, I think, journalism and to support, you know, um, uh, yeah, people in their jobs. Um, and to support frankly, a little bit of money to the Murdochs as well. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to make this highly political, so I didn't want well, to no. do that. Their <laughs> business money, yeah, when you're on the internet and you're thinking, and I, I'm always quite guilty. God, I really should be reading the Telegraph now, but actually, I'm watching a dog on a skateboard. Um, it's yeah. uh, it, it's funny, isn't it? And when you've got something for free, you always want it. Okay, let's. We better move on, actually, uh, to uh, books. It's an interesting one. Uh, how we consume books. I'm a massive fan of audiobooks because um, it gives me one less thing to do, uh, i.e., move my eyeballs from left to right. Um, one of my closest friends is. Uh, blind so uh, he introduced me to audiobooks very early on uh, and I've really enjoyed them but it's uh, people still like to have the tactile nature of some wood pulp in their hands don't they it was an interesting stat from you uh, Claire earlier about um, the, the uh, only 30% digitized books which I guess means 70 are physical books and we still like to uh, lend them in the way that we used to lend records but um, just briefly um, how's things looking in the in the world of books and this time it is Claire. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, it's me again. But I will let Maureen <laughs> Dixon out. Um, books are not well suited to subscription models, partly because there's already a pretty good subscription model out there, and it's free, and it's called the public library. And so, <laughs> uh, when people need to find a book and they don't want to pay for it, uh, they go to the library. They still do. Uh, to this day, uh, and that seems to work quite well. Subscription models for books. Uh, you would have thought that publishers would have tried to come up with a way to do it. None of them have. They are much more comfortable with a traditional model of selling first a hardback, then the paperback, etc., etc. Uh, they have is they have embraced to some extent the ebook model, especially for genre fiction. Uh, romance and sci-fi and fantasy, you know, those those are the segments that do really well on ebooks and business books to a lesser extent. The one that people will still buy is, you know, the the, the most recent Booker Prize because they want to be seen to be reading it and they want it on their shelves and you know those those things are, are still are still around. Um, the only relatively successful subscription model for books that exists is Kindle Unlimited. Which is a subscription model for ebooks, where you pay your subscription every month, and then you can you can get as many books as you want from the Kindle Unlimited library, which is very skewed towards genre fiction, and it's skewed towards the sort of second tier genre fiction books. So you don't get the bestsellers; you get a very large um, library of sometimes quite decent, but not the sort of top of the range. Um, books in crime novels, romance novels, uh, young adult novels, etc. It has had some success. Uh, it's not, it's certainly, uh, Amazon still thinks it's useful enough to keep going. 
people complain a lot about the lack of choice of, of premium choice. So it's, it's, you know, if you are an author or a publisher and you've got a book coming out and it's going to be a big one, you don't put it on Kindle Unlimited. You make sure that you get as much revenues from it. It's a bit like the movie business in that sense. And then as a second run, you might possibly put it on Kindle Unlimited. Um, but yes, the limit, the, the subscription market is limited by the fact that ebooks are still only 30% of consumption. And so, you know, and, and subscription models for physical books are painful because you have to get a box at home and then you have to send it back. And it's like the sort of love film Netflix model with DVDs all over again, except books are bigger and heavier. And why don't you just go to the library? So there is, you know, it, it hasn't, there hasn't been a, a a significant breakthrough. It's the one market, I think, where subscription has not really made a big dent in the market. But it's it's always been a, a slightly different model, a book model, to be fair. And and, and that's to add to that, yeah, it's a, those that are experimenting or those that uh, recognize that they've got a very strong readership or, or, or a fan base. So, for example, um, Club Penguin. So, you know, uh, uh, putting together subscription packages, a package for, you know, the, the, the parents and the, and the child under the age of five, for example, and they'll participate in digital assets, a digital reading, but also some uh, physical books. Um, but but as, as that demographic changes and grows up, you know, you then lose that, um, you lose that particular market. So it's pretty tricky. The, the other is, for example, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, has uh, you know teamed up with a combination of Warner um, at Warner Media and also a small company called Wonderbly, and again they tried to sort of put together a subscription package for the fans. So so it's more fan based loyalty programs where you're issued with a journal and then you're sent certain you know certain uh, uh, let's say merchandise. So rather than books, there will be a book, the journal, but it'd be additive in terms of you know maybe a wizardry hat. Or, or, or a new sort of potion, you know, so it goes beyond just the book. So, so yeah, it's not, it's, as Claire says, it's not, it's not worked uh, as effectively as the other segments. So, yeah, I think they'll just continue to, to look at more franchises, look at fans, and then provide merchandise, and that could also include a book, but, but beyond that, nothing. It's funny, isn't it? If we'd um, had this conversation 10, maybe 15 years ago, and we tried to predict uh, how it would all work out, that there'd be a dominant player in Spotify, that in TV it would start with, own, with, with owning the rights to content and then producing content, books would struggle, magazines would struggle, um, newspapers would struggle to get people to understand the value of the, the, the stuff when it's not on paper, and yet in Spotify that's not a problem at all. I wonder if we'd be able to predict that. I guess you two would, because you guys are the experts. But uh, anyway, interesting yeah, thought experiment. Uh, but I will say two things. First of all, book, books as a market aren't struggling. They're struggling to implement a subscription model, but they're right. actually a booming segment, weirdly enough, especially through the pandemic. And the other thing I want to say is uh, 10 years ago, the CEO then of Random House UK uh, stood up in front of an audience. Do you remember that, Maureen? I think you yeah. were there. And he said, and this was the beginning of ebooks, and everybody thought ebooks were going to take over the world. And he said, I, I'm confident that ebooks will never represent more than 50% of the book market. And I, at the time, I specifically thought he's wrong. And he was, he was actually, not only was he right, but he was overestimating with the proportion that they would get to. So there you go. Some yeah. people knew, but not me. <laughs> Ah, yeah, uh, right. So yeah. we've, uh, anyway, no one can predict the future. It's funny when I'm sitting on the tube, which is not very often these days, I'm amazed at how many young people still have a, a, a tatty old penguin book that they're reading from. There's something, there's something nice about it. And it is a tatty old penguin book. They've probably yeah. borrowed it from the library. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. I love humans and tech coming together and uh, how it evolves. So finally, we're in the home straight, but let's talk about gaming. Um, I know you bought it up, uh, Claire, so um, I don't know whether you want to tackle this one first. I thought it was very interesting that you said when you talk about gaming, you imagine these nerds in their chairs that move around with massive headsets and VR uh, shooting each other across the globe. But of course, if you don't have latency in your broadband, which of course great swathes of the US don't, uh, then it's it's not going to work. So it's 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 not about uh, getting the bits to you. It's about it's about you can't buffer because this is real time stuff. Um, so in terms of subscription. Um, How's that looking? 
Yeah, I mean, there are two things. There's cloud gaming, which is you don't have to buy the physical game anymore. You can you can uh, play it because it's in the cloud. And that's the bit that really raises the big problem. They, the uh, gaming companies thought that was the future, and they have run into serious problems with latency, especially, especially weirdly in the US, where you think they would have solved this by now. But um, And then there is subscription, but subscription models often go with cloud gaming because that's the principle. That's, you know, it's, it's removing the physical product. Once you have a physical product, then you bought it, the subscription makes less sense. Cloud gaming allows you to say, pay a, pay a few you know, pounds or a few hundred pounds uh, and then a month or a year, and then you'll have access to this big library of content in the cloud that you can play with. So there are ways to avoid the latency problems you can download, but then you need machines with a fairly large hard drives. You know, they haven't quite solved it. There have been a number of attempts to do subscription models. Uh, Google had a big one that didn't quite work and they've stopped talking about it. So I suspect they'll close it down quietly at some point. Microsoft still very much thinks this is the way to go because, and that's, you know, that was partly the drive behind their uh, recent acquisition of, was it Activision that they bought? Yeah. Um, and uh, and so they really want to push that. Nintendo's tried with more the sort of smaller Nintendo games, more, moving more in the area of casual gaming and that's had some success, but we're not talking big, massive uh, AAA, you know, uh, gaming experiences. That still doesn't quite work on the cloud. And because it doesn't quite work on the cloud, it doesn't quite work as a subscription model. Meanwhile, and in parallel, the market that is really booming and has been for a long time is casual gaming. And those are the games that started on Facebook, really. Farmville, and then they moved to mobile. And, uh, you know, the, one of the probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest success in that in that market was Candy Crush, still is a massive, massive brand, but there are many others. Uh, they represent a very significant part of the gaming market, even though nobody wants to talk about it because it's not sexy and exciting. They are uh, normally, they started out as a freemium, either premium or freemium model. So either premium, you had to download, you paid to download and then you could pay it. That's not a great model because you get paid once and then the person can pay, play it forever. And again, casual games like music are, are content that you will play over and over and over again because there's a real repeat effort there, whereas big, uh, massive uh, games are much more like films in that you don't really play them more than once or maybe twice. Um, so the, the premium model that turned out to be not that profitable, a lot of the um, casual game manufacturers then moved on to this freemium model where it was ad supported, there was a lot of ads, and then you could buy packs to improve your whatever or get, you know, jump levels faster. Or, and that worked quite well for a while. There were a few scandals. Uh, I remember the Smurf game where a four year old bought about $1,000 worth of Smurf money without realizing that they were doing it. But, you know, the, the, those were hiccups at the beginning. And that, that worked relatively well. But the most recent model for casual games is absolutely subscription and that seems to have traction uh, it's early days but it seems to be having to, to be working much better than in other areas of games and i think it's because it's it's a similar model to music is that you know i play a lot of casual games i do play a lot of casual games and i and i'm quite happy to pay a small amount every month to have access to a library of casual games without advertising it has value for me and I know I'm going to consume enough of it to make it worth it. So yes, it's, it's the subscription model in gaming is coming from left field as it were, not where you'd expect it. It's funny where these comparisons happen. So it's more comparative to Spotify than it is to maybe TV and film is what you might guess because it's a visual experience. Um, Maureen, what would you like to add? I'll only add one thing to that, and that, that's where I think it's fascinating that um, like the newspaper industry is going back to the point about how to lock in value for their subscribers uh, through their loyalty programs. They're, they're going down the route of casual gaming and word games and puzzles. As we know, there was always a New York Times crossword or the Times crossword and the like. And so I thought it was fascinating to see that New York Times acquired a company called Wordly. And, uh, and there you can have, Claire, exactly what you said, there's a, there's a freemium option. Uh, but they've actually put it behind a, a paywall and a subscription package, uh, which is which is nothing, which is nominal. I think it's a couple of pounds. 
but they um, they give you also uh, access to like spelling bee and, and other word puzzles. So so I think that's, that's fascinating to see that you know all 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 segments of the media industry all competing for our attention and providing us with entertainment in one form or another. And our wallets. <laughs> and our wallets and our wallets. So it's all about screen time, mind time, attention time. So the attention economy is experimenting quite heavily with, you know, subscriptions models. But as we've as we've highlighted today, across all the different segments, it, it, it can and cannot work, you know, um, at different varying degrees. It's sort of we're successful, more successful in music, maybe less successful in other segments. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's my addition. Short, sweet edition uh oliver back to you well i was going to summarize back to me in the studio thank you very much Uh, i was going to summarize but i don't need to that was a beautiful summary of the five segments that we've gone at a canter no please don't please don't uh, look uh look um uh, sorry it's uh, i'm absolutely thrilled that someone's doing my job because um i've discovered i'm getting paid so uh i get paid whatever um so a beautiful summary really interesting that hour just absolutely flew by i love the way tech meets person person behaves sometimes predictably and sometimes unpredictably and that's the beauty of the game we're in unless you have anything you would further like to add i would just like to uh, thank you both and I um, look forward very much to the next episode. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've got quite a lot to think about in terms of my subscription uh, strategy, particularly in the TV world where I subscribe to absolutely everything and therefore get fleeced monthly uh, by, the, uh, by the visual industry. So thank you very much both for now. See you next time. What an excellent episode. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye, Oliver. Thank you.